want to start on a, a complete tangent with related with relation to cell cycle regulation. Um, we, we just got some really cool results in the lab that I can't help but sort of share. Um, so are you guys at all familiar, so you're familiar with the existence of granular structures in the cell like Peabody's and Cajol bodies, yes, sort of? No, okay. So, 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 so there, there's, you know, there's like, I don't know, eight to ten or a dozen different granular structures in cells that are comprised of proteins and RNA. And up until recently, say five years ago, the, the, the molecular basis for the existence of these structures was really sort of unknown, you know, in terms of how molecules interact so as to organize into granular structures. And uh, so one of, one of these types of granular structures is the nucleolus, which you've probably heard of. Yeah, heard of the nucleolus. It's the center for ribosome biogenesis. So it's where ribosomal RNA genes, uh, the DNA genes are transcribed, where those um, pre-RNAs are spliced and chemically modified, and where they are assembled with ribosomal proteins and then out pop sort of pre-ribosomal particles that then, then go through the nuclear pore complex to the cytoplasm, mature further, and make ribosomes. Uh, so it has been discovered in the last five years or so that all of these different types of granular structures arise from phase separation phenomena between proteins and RNA. So just as uh, oil in water forms droplets, these granular structures are liquid-like, have liquid-like features <coughs> arising from loose sort of transient interactions between proteins and RNA that uh, give rise to these liquid-like structures. It, it's, 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 it's a new paradigm at the interface of structural biology and cell biology. It's a really hot emerging field, um, especially because a lot of these granular structures are associated with stress responses in cells. Um, so we're, we've been studying a major protein in the nucleolus called nucleophosmin, which uh, we discovered about a year ago undergoes phase separation with ribosomal proteins as well as more recently, ribosomal RNA, and um, just today we, we discovered uh, sort of a key aspect of nucleophosmin's role where it actually doesn't mediate the phase separation process per se because ribosomal proteins and ribosomal RNA can actually phase separate themselves, but 
in the presence of nucleophosmin because it can interact, it weakly interacts with both of those types of molecules. It actually dramatically lowers the concentration threshold for formation of a liquid-like phase uh, in vitro, and we think that this is what's going on in cells. Uh, and the, the importance of these liquid-like phases is that they're highly dynamic and they allow molecules to diffuse in and out. Um, and it's thought that the phase separation process concentrates the components of these st stress granules so as to enhance the activities they have toward substrates within the stress granules. Um, so um, anyways, we're working toward writing what we think is going to be a very important paper in the field and just got a key result this morning. Uh, although my postdoc was kind of distressed by the results because it means she needs to repeat a whole bunch of experiments to understand things further, but actually it's a pretty big breakthrough in how we understand the role of this protein nucleophosmin uh, in the nucleolus. If you want to read about this, uh, you could write down the name Cliff Brangwyn, B-R-A-N-G-W-Y-N-N-E, uh, Clifford. He's an assistant professor at Princeton. And he wrote a very nice uh, perspective piece in Cell in 2000, uh, 2012. Um, but another nice review paper, a more recent one to read, uh, would be a paper by uh, Peter E. Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T. Um, I forget where it appeared recently, but the, the term assemblages is in the title. Um, and that was published just recently, so it's a 2014 paper. But mark my words, um, sort of the understanding of the roles or the structural basis and, and, and functional roles of granular structures is sort of undergoing a, that, that exist in cells that play really important roles in a wide variety of processes is sort of undergoing, undergoing a revolution in understanding. Um, so this is a really hot area in cell biology. Okay, cell cycle. Any questions from last time? No? Okay. Uh, any comments? You hate cell cycle. You love cell cycle. By the end of Thursday's lecture, you are going to love cell cycle. I guarantee. Um, it's a challenge I'm willing to accept. Uh, okay, so today we are going to uh, talk about the structural basis for the activation of CDKs by binding to cyclin regulatory subunits. Uh, in addition, they're activated by phosphorylation. So we're going to look at molecular structures uh, to illustrate uh, this uh, activation process. And in addition, we're going to talk about uh, two families of inhibitors of the CDKs that act in different ways. Uh, the P16 family that bind to uh, certain of the CDKs and prevent their association with cyclins. And another family, uh, termed the P21 family, uh, which bind to active CDK cyclin complexes and potently inhibit them. Although the functional roles of these proteins is actually much more complex 
than is illustrated here. Um, this was the story as of 2007, but uh, the story changed quite dramatically through the discovery that uh, related uh, another family member of this, uh, another member of this small protein family called P27 uh, was phosphorylated on tyrosine residues by non-receptor tyrosine kinases and that um, that enabled the CDKs that were bound by P27 to be catalytically active. And it turns out that that's a critical switch uh, in, uh, at the G1S transition uh, for, uh, well, it, yeah. So this tyrosine phosphorylation of P27, and we just had a paper accepted showing that the same mechanism operates, or same general mechanism operates with P21. Um, is a switch that controls the G1 to S checkpoint in cell cycle, and I'll talk about that mechanism at the end of today's lecture. Uh, okay, so, uh, so we're going to speak in terms of structural biology. So we're going to look at the structural features here of CD cyclin-dependent kinase 2, uh, and then as we progress through that sequence of events, illustrated on the previous slide, um, we'll look at the different forms of CDK2, bound to cyclin, bound to cyclin, phosphorylated, um, to understand uh, what structural changes accompany the activation uh, of the kinase. So, um, so this is the crystal structure for CDK2, and so listed on the left, uh, are some of the key features that um, I'll point out that I think you should understand uh, and be able to explain on an exam, for example. Um, so kinases in general have two uh, domains, uh, an N-terminal domain that's made of beta sheets, and a C-terminal domain that's made up of alpha helices. And the active site is in between those two domains. So you can see it written in green, active site. That's where you'll see that ATP binds in future slides. And Okay, so, I mean, and, and it, it, as I said, pretty much all kinases look like this. And, um, you know, different kinases have different numbers of domains, other additional domains that, you know, fold back on different, in different places on the kinase domain and modulate its activity. Um, but fundamentally, the, the catalytic domain of kinases, they all look uh, generally like this. They have N-terminal beta sheet domain and a C-terminal alpha helix um, domain, and the active site is in between the two. And the, I don't really place a lot of emphasis on it in, in these slides, but the, 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 the um, parts of the structure that connect the two domains are sort of critical for uh, controlling how the two parts of the structure uh, sort of talk to each other. And um, there are, 
this is sort of off the topic, but there are small molecule inhibitors of certain kinases um, that bind in the, in the ATP binding pocket and inhibit kinase activity by blocking access of ATP. Um, and then there are mutations uh, in like this hinge region between the two domains that um, arise in like cancer patients receiving these kinase inhibitor drugs that give rise to escape from uh, therapy, basically. Um, so it's, it's a really sort of hot um, area. Uh, okay, so two features of the structure that are um, sort of involved in the activation process are uh, what I call here the P-stair helix, uh, which in this presentation is on the right-hand side of the structure. And you'll see, so when, when the cyclin binds, so, so this kinase is about 35 kilodaltons. Uh, a cyclin domain is about 30 kilodaltons, so they're about the same size. And you'll see in the next slide that cyclin binds over here. So it's like a round type protein made up of all pretty much exclusively alpha helices. And it, um, so when the cyclin binds, it shoves the P-star helix over and I'll illustrate that um, structural change. And it sort of remodels the um, right-hand side, in this view, of the active site of the kinase. And then shown in red is another critical feature, which is called the activation loop. Uh, and so this is a loop of, I don't know, 20 residues or so. And uh, kind of in the middle of it is a threonine residue that um, for the kinase to ultimately be active, this threonine has to be phosphorylated. Um, but in this conformation, um, so this, this conformation of the activation loop is very different from the conformation in active um, CDK cyclin complexes. So a critical aspect of cyclin binding is remodeling the activation loop and in different types of kinases, there are, there's always an activation loop, although exactly how the activation loop changes, how its structure changes due to phosphorylation, interactions with activating partners really varies. Um, but, and and the, the, the cyclin-dependent kinases are really, in a certain sense, unique by requiring cyclin binding for their activation. Um, there are many kinases that are regulated um, by domains, additional domains within their own linear sequences, um, but these kinases are really kind of rare in requiring a you know, sort of in-trans regulatory subunit. Um, and I think that reflects just how critical it is to control the activity of these kinases which um, are responsible for you know, making decisions about whether a cell divides or not. Um, okay. Any questions about that? Okay, so what happens when cyclin binds? So what happens when cyclin binds is shown here. So, 
So in this structure, ATP is present, okay? So as advertised, ATP binds at the interface of the N-terminal and C-terminal lobes. Just, and, and so basically, well, you can look at it from the side. see it right here. So it's kind of underneath, so the beta sheets are kind of like a roof, uh, and the alpha helices sort of form a platform uh, into which ATP wedges, so the adenine ring uh, is here, and then the three phosphates, uh, and let's see. ever look at structures in real time, live? Anybody do that? Yes? No? Show hands? One? That's it? Only one? This is like how biochemistry works. It's like molecules, atoms. Dr. White showed us a lot of them. He would do that. Yeah, he showed us a lot of Yeah, as the chair of structural biology, he would kind of do that. Yeah, that's what we kind of do. So we kind of like understand how molecules work. Um, it's, it's actually really easy to do this. I mean, you can go to, um, you can go to, well, um, so it's really easy to find, find out if there's a structure for a protein of interest uh, using BLAST. Yeah? So you can, you can go to NCBI and search for the sequence of your protein of interest, like search uh, the proteins database under NCBI for CDK2 human, and you'll get the sequence. Cut and paste the amino acid sequence into another window that's um, at protein blast. Paste in the amino acid sequence, and then under the um, uh, database tab, pick protein databank, um, and it will search your sequence against uh, all the sequences of proteins for which there is structural data. And then in the hits, if there are hits, you will, um, there will be an indication of a four-letter numeral code that is the PDB ID number. Um, so all deposited three-dimensional structures um, that are called PDB files that are just lists of XYZ coordinates for atoms and atom names and atom types and so on. Um, uh, they have a unique code, which is four characters that are a mixture of letters um, and or numerals. And so once you get the code for the structure of interest, so for this structure, you would search for CDK2 cyclin A human, um, and you would find it. It's a structure by Nikola Pavlovich from, oh, I don't know, mid-90s, late-90s. Um, and so then you get the four-letter code, then you go to a Google window, and you go protein databank, and then you enter the four-letter code, and then you'll get a, uh, probably the top hit will be the database page 
for that particular structure. And when you get to that database page, there are tools for visualizing the structure um, over the web. And you can just look at structures. But you can also you know, download the primary data and then view it with other molecule viewers, which are readily available um, from lots of different sources. Um, it takes a little practice to learn how to use them. That's why the web-based viewing is kind of the easiest way to get access to um, structures. But, but you, too, can twirl around structures like we do uh, kind of for a living. Um, okay. So... Um, but don't you think it's important to understand how, how proteins actually work? Yeah? Some of you are convinced. Others are unconvinced or don't care. Um, well, for the purposes of this class, these lectures, it uh, behooves you to become a little bit engaged in this process of looking at structures. Enjoying your studies will enhance your experience, I am sure. Um, okay, so ATP phosphates, right? Phosphates are right there. Okay, so it's so one alpha, beta, gamma. So first one on the way. Uh, so it's this gamma phosphate that gets transferred to either a serine or a threonine on a substrate, right? So the substrates bind uh, in this platform here. Uh, so the reason they can bind in, in this sort of platform that uh, basically is made by the activation loop is because the conformation of the acti activation loop has changed dramatically with respect to the previous uh, structural slide, right? It was like up here like this. So in the absence of cyclin, the activation loop is kind of like in the way uh, for substrates to bind. Um, so the cyclin is in magenta off to the right. So if I zoom back out, uh, see cyclin uh, on the right. Uh, as I said, it's a helical protein. And it binds to both the N and the C-terminal lobes of the kinase. But one of the things that it does is it makes interactions with uh, residues at sort of the middle of this activation loop and stabilizes a conformation where uh, the activation loop is sort of drawn out and as you see here. Uh, one thing that I didn't emphasize uh, in the previous slide, which I'll go quickly go back to, is that part of the activation loop actually has a helical conformation, which you can see right there in the back. And uh, when binding to cyclin, the whole activation loop sort of gets pulled toward the cyclin, and this helix actually unfurls uh, in the cyclin-bound structure that we see here. And the other thing that has happened is that this part of the cyclin has literally shoved, uh, well, it isn't, hasn't shoved the whole p-star helix, but it's caused, caused the p-star helix to pivot uh, and the pivot point is in the back. So this back point of the P-stair helix is about the same in both structures, but what the cyclin has done is caused 
uh, this end of the helix to pivot over uh, quite substantially. Uh, and it now sort of forms the right-hand side in this view of the active site um, of the kinase. Uh, but the kinase is not active yet, uh, and that's because the threonine in the activation loop that's located here is not yet phosphorylated. So, um, and I, I'm pretty explicit about sort of like listing the, these key features uh, and the structural changes that accompany uh, activation. Uh, and and I, I, I sort of loosely use this term, the closed state. So I refer to the conformation of the P-stair helix in the CDK, in sort of the, the isolated CDK is the open state, and cyclin binding by shoving it over or causing it to pivot sort of gives, gives rise to a closed conformation. It's not terminology that's used sort of beyond my class slides, but it's an easy terminology to remember and to sort of understand the basis of. Um, okay, so phosphorylation is required for the kinase to be active. Um, and what happens uh, upon activation is, is kind of cool, actually. Um, it's really kind of simple, uh, as long as you understand some basic principles of how molecules or atoms interact. So, um, so, the, so there's, there's a constitu constitutively active um, kinase complex that's referred to as CDK activating kinase. It's a kinase bound to a particular cyclin and it's generally active in cells and it specifically phosphorylates pretty much just the threonines or serines in the activation loops of CDKs. Um, so it's, so CDK activity, CAC activity is referred to as, it's not a, a, a point of regulation of cell cycle because the, the, these kinases are riskly constitutively expressed and constitutively active. Um, uh, but what they do, what phosphorylation does, so here's the threonine and uh, here's the phosphate group on the threonine. And what phosphorylation does is it causes the threonine to sort of pivot and interact through electrostatic interactions <coughs> with three charged side chains that are in CDK2, sort of underneath where this threonine, phosphorylated threonine, has ended up. Uh, so through these, so these are, um, I think it's one lysine and two arginines, or maybe it's three arginines. No, I think it's one lysine and and two arginines. Um, through these interaction, these interactions essentially sort of organize this part of the structure, which, if we zoom back out is part of the substrate binding platform. Okay. So substrate then binds basically you know, so so the and we're gonna 
we're going to talk about um, the substrate, uh, the, 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 the regions in substrates that get phosphorylated in some depth uh, when we discuss the paper um, uh, uh, on Thursday. Um, so these, so uh, the substrates of cyclobenzene kinases have serines or threonines adjacent to proline residues with certain types of flanking residues um, that can bind within this binding groove here. And so the threonine or serine, serine the hydroxyl side, side chain of those amino acids will point in the direction of the, the gamma phosphate of ATP and transfer will occur. Um, but the reorganization of this activation loop due to phosphorylation of the threonine is absolutely essential um, for a CDK to be competent for phosphorylating substrates. Okay. All right. Okay. So now we'll talk about the sort of two types of inhibitors of CDKs. Uh, so. Uh, you know, so not you know, so so not only are the CDKs regulated um, by cyclin binding and by phosphorylation of the threonine in the activation loop, uh, but they're negatively regulated in a couple of different ways. Um, so so as to uh, sort of impose sort of checkpoints. Uh, so the first class of inhibitors they inhibit CDK four. Uh, and CDK6, CDKs 4 and 6 are kind of sort of equivalent. They both um, pair up with D-type cyclins and regulate the earliest events in uh, mammalian cell cycle progression. Um, and then the second, the P21 family uh, of inhibitors uh, bind especially to CDK2 complexes with either cyclins E or A uh, and impose a, a somewhat later G1 to S uh, checkpoint. So we'll talk about structural details of both types of inhibitors. So first, the P16 inhibitors. So the, the regulatory scenario is, is illustrated here. Uh, so when CDK4 pairs up with cyclone D and it's... Uh, its threonine in the activation loop gets phosphorylated, although that's not shown here. Uh, this kinase complex, as well as the similar CDK6 complex, can uh, partially phosphorylate the retinoblastoma protein. Uh, so the retinoblastoma protein, as you probably know already, yes? Know about RB? Yes? No? Don't care? Who's heard of RB? Yay! Okay, for those of you who haven't heard of RB or are too shy to say, um, RB is a, is a very important protein that is a central regulatory point for cell cycle control. And uh, it binds to transcription factors. Several, so there are several RB family proteins. RB, I talked about this uh, on the last at the end of the last uh, lecture uh, when I talked about the substrates of the CDK. So there's 
there's RB, P107, and P130. Um, and they bind to uh, the E2F transcription factor family and inhibit them. Uh, but when RB becomes phosphorylated, the interactions between uh, the two proteins is altered or weakened and uh, E2Fs become activated. Uh, and they become activated in a sort of sequential fashion where the CDK4 and 6 complexes partially phosphorylate RB and partially activate the E2Fs and uh, I mean essentially they get derepressed slightly. Um, but then that leads to expression of cyclins E and A, which then pair up with the CDK2 complexes, which then uh, sort of phosphorylate all the remaining sites on RB, leading to um, dissociation of RB from the E2Fs. E2Fs become fully transcriptionally active and then drive um, the expression of all the genes that are needed for DNA replication and nucleotide biosynthesis, et cetera, et cetera, um, as was discussed on a slide last time. Okay, so that's what these complexes do. So they kick off the early events of the transition from G1 into S phase. Uh, so um, there are these proteins called the P16 family of CDK inhibitors that can bind to uh, CDKs 4 and 6 before they pair up with cyclin D and prevent them from binding to cyclin D, uh, kind of sequestering them in an inactive state. Um, and mutations in uh, the genes for these P16 proteins are uh, uh, often found in different types of cancer. Uh, so P16 specifically was discovered as a mutated gene in uh, melanoma in families uh, exhibited uh, heightened frequency of uh, melanoma, uh, quite a deadly cancer, um, actually. Uh, as well, there are mutations in other members of the family. The family includes, includes P15, P16, P18, and P19, just for completeness. Um, okay, so what do these inhibitors look like and how do they inhibit CDK406. So this is the complex of uh, P19. Uh, so these are uh, also called the INC4 proteins. So P19 is called INC4D. That's why the name is what it is. And it's a complex with CDK6. Um, so P19 is shown in this brownish, yellowish color, and CDK6 is shown in teal. Uh, showing the same, uh, highlighting the same uh, additional features that we talked about already. And so, um, so these P16 family proteins have sort of interesting structures. Uh, I think they were the first um, Structures with this with this particular sort of structural topology, um, so they, they have what are called onkin repeat domains, and an onkin repeat domain consists of a pair of alpha helices. So here's so um, this is the N terminus. 
and so there's a helix here, then there's a sort of a loop or turn, then there's another anti-parallel helix here, and then the structure comes up, and then there's a beta hairpin. And then if I rotate the structure a little bit, you can see that there's another onker and repeat right here. Okay, so another pair of helices, another beta hairpin, then yet another, another, and another. Okay, so this one has what? One, two, three, four, five of these onkin repeats. Uh, turns out that, that there are many, many proteins um, that have onkin repeat um, topologies um, because onkin repeats sort of lend themselves to protein protein interactions. Um, so through this repetitive structure, um, you create a sort of interface. Uh, that can bind to other proteins. And you can conserve the onkin-repeat topology by maintaining amino acids sort of within the core of the structure, but the amino acids sort of at this interface uh, can vary to allow uh, specificity for other binding partners to evolve. Um, to achieve specific interactions with all sorts of different types of proteins. So you find, I think, probably hundreds of proteins with onkin repeats. Um, and they were really first, well, I think amongst their first instances of discovery are in the P16 family of proteins. So, um, so how, does the, how does P19 bind? Uh, so here's the N-terminal lobe. Here's the C-terminal lobe. Here's the active site. Uh, so basically, P19 is binding, you know, on the side of the N-terminal beta sheet lobe. Um, it's not interacting really at all with the C-terminal lobe, just a little bit uh, at this interface. And what it's doing is it's preventing the N-terminal lobe from rotating over uh, if a cyclone was try, tried to bind. Because um, we talked about you know, the remodeling of the active site loop and the sort of the pivoting of uh, the P-stair helix. Um, and that pivoting of the P-stair helix requires some rotation like this of the N-terminal domain and this P19 protein is basically like a wedge in the door preventing that uh, hinge motion from occurring. So it's a pretty simple mechanism of inhibition. And the other family members, P15, 16, and 18, uh, have different numbers of onkering repeats. Um, I think, I, I don't, yeah. I mean, P15 and 16 must have like three, P18 maybe four, P19 five, since their P numbers correspond to their relative molecular weights in SDS page gels. Um, okay, so um, so these the this pair of slides simply illustrates. Um, so this is. This is CDK2 that we looked at before uh, when cyclin A is bound. So this conformation reflects the, um, 
Uh, structural effects of cyclin. Cyclin is not drawn. Uh, it would be right here. Um, so this is sort of the closed confirmation of the N-terminal domain uh, of uh, CDK2. There's no sort of APO structure of CDK4. Um, that's why I use CDK2 as a reference uh, for this comparison. And then this is the structure of CDK6 you just looked at. Um, P19 would be bound here, uh, but it's just not illustrated. Um, and you can see the difference in sort of the conformation of the P-stair helix especially, um, but also you can sort of see that this whole domain is sort of rotated uh, uh, sort of in this direction a little bit relative to the conformation here. So that's the mechanism of inhibition of CDKs by the P16 family of uh, inhibitors. So now we turn attention to the P21 family. So the, the way P21 was discovered was it was uh, one of the very first P53 dependent genes to be discovered. Um, uh, so when P53 was discovered to be a, an activator of transcription, the hunt was then on to identify uh, it's the genes that were its uh, regulatory targets. And uh, P21, as I said, was amongst the very first um, that was discovered. And it was then discovered that P21 was an inhibitor of cyclin CDKs, which then explained how P21 could cause cell cycle arrest in response to its activation by, for example, DNA damage. Um, P53 also promotes apoptosis, and depending upon cell type and uh, cellular setting, uh, either cell cycle arrest or apoptosis will be dominant, um, uh, but the cell cycle arrest arm of P53 dependent responses to, to DNA damage and other types of cell stress are mediated by P21. So it's a pretty famous little protein for that reason. Um, but I, so, but in addition, there's uh, another protein, uh, P27, that's a close relative of P21. P27 is not regulated by P53. Uh, P27 is uh, sort of constitutively expressed in most mammalian cells and therefore, and, and, it's, and it's an inhibitor of, actually inhibits all of these, uh, actually inhibits all of these CDKs, so does P21. Uh, I think the most important effects are in regulation of the G1 uh, cyclin CDKs, and that's what we understand uh, best. Uh, and so the expression of P27 then is a mechanism for cells that have just divided to not undergo additional rounds of division uh, sort of inappropriately. Um, so there has to be uh, 
appropriate positive signaling in order for um, this checkpoint to be eliminated. And the way that the checkpoint is eliminated is through the degradation of P27 at this G1 to S boundary. Uh, so what I'll describe to you um, sort of in the next sequence of slides is the mechanism by which P27 is um, degraded through uh, a phosphorylation cascade that ultimately leads to recognition of P27 by an E3 ligase uh, that's called SCF skip 2. Uh, and P27 becomes polyubiquitinated and uh, selectively degraded uh, from its complexes with especially CDK2 cyclones E and A, uh, leading to the full activation then um, of these complexes. Um, the reason I show CDK1 here is because in genetic knockout studies, um, where CDK2 is genetically deleted from cells, CDK1 can substitute for CDK2 activity. And the reason for this green arrow uh, indicating activation is because there were past findings that um, not only CDK4 cyclone D complexes, but also CDK2 um, cyclin E and A complexes could be found in cells in a P27 bound form where the kinases exhibited catalytic activity. Um, and that really threw a monkey wrench into um, understanding of the role of P27 in cell cycle regulation. Um, but these, I mean, especially this finding was. Um, can now be explained, and, uh, which I will do. Uh, so, as I said, P27 is sort of a constitutive inhibitor of uh, inappropriate um, cell division. Uh, and so, because it plays such a critical role in, in you know, regulating cell proliferation, uh, this activity needs to be uh, eliminated for cells to divide. Cancer cells divide in an uncontrolled fashion, and uh, sort of one hallmark of cancer cells is that they exhibit reduced levels of P27. So cancer cells find ways to reduce the level of P27 so that they're basically eliminating the G1 to S checkpoint. Uh, so loss of P27 causes deregulation of the G1 to S checkpoint, and um, the degree to which P27 is lost in a cancer cell uh, is a predictor of clinical prognosis, with the sort of lower the level of P27, the poorer the clinical prognosis. And so P27 is used as a marker clinically um, in certain types of cancer, to help clinicians understand the severity of disease. Uh, so, um, well, our studies are not so recent now, um, but we, we uncovered with a, 
through collaboration with um, a uh, investigator, uh, Ludger Hengst in Austria, we uncovered the mechanism of P27 elimination uh, in both normal and tumor cells, um, sort of clarifying the previously sort of poorly under conflicting uh, information about the role of P27 with respect to CDK, CDK complex activity. So <clears throat> this slide, and, and I'll show, show this in a couple of different uh, sort of forms, uh, schematically illustrates uh, what we discovered. And, um, and then we'll talk a little bit more about the structural details of P27. Uh, so P27 and P21 are sort of early examples of, of disordered proteins. And uh, in the absence of their cyclin TDK uh, complexes, um, they uh, don't have very much secondary or tertiary structure and are basically like pieces of spaghetti in a pot of boiling water. Um, but they fold upon binding uh, to cyclin CDK complexes. Uh, so, so shown here schematically is P27, and we'll look at the crystal structure of it. Um, so there's one part of the, at the N-terminal part of the protein that binds to a specific surface on cyclins, and then there's a, a linker segment that forms a helix that then connects to uh, a second domain that folds into a very sort of intricate structure um, on the N-terminal lobe of the kinase, it actually forms an intermolecular strand with the kinase. Uh, and then this little circle indicates a turn of helix that sits in the ATP binding pocket of the kinase. But then there's another 100 residues, um, a C-terminal domain, that doesn't participate in binding to cyclin kinase complexes, just sort of dangles off and is, is highly disordered when this part, so this is the N-terminal domain, this is the C-terminal domain, N-terminal domain folds upon binding to the cyclin and the kinase, C-terminal domain remains disordered and sort of dangles in solution. And so uh, what was known, so what was known prior to our studies in, in the mid-2000s was that if you phosphorylated a threonine at the end of this C-terminal tail, you created a binding site for the E3 ligase SCF skip 2, which would lead to ubiquitination of lysine residues within this C-terminal tail. And then the selective uh, recognition of ubiquitinated P27 by the 26S proteasome and P27's degradation, leaving fully active CDK, CDK cyclin complexes. Okay, so, so when P27 is ubiquitinated, it gets degraded, releasing the fully active kinase complexes. And this is the base. This was this this was identified as the basis for crossing the G1 to S transition. But the what was also shown that was really a puzzle was that it was the activity of CDK2 that was required to phosphorylate this residue. But 
it was also well known that P27 was a really potent inhibitor of CDK2. So how could inhibited CDK2 be associated with the phosphorylation of this threonine residue? Um, and that was, that was a big puzzle, um, which is listed here. So um, that, that's the puzzle that we figured out. And the missing piece of information in this picture was that there's an additional prior phosphorylation event that occurs that converts CDK2 from being inhibited to being partially active. And that phosphorylation event is the phosphorylation of a tyrosine residue in P27 that sits in this little term of helix that um, when unphosphorylated inhibits the kinase and when phosphorylated gets kicked out of this binding site and allows the kinase to be partially active. And we'll look at that in more detail. Uh, so this is um, the crystal structure of the N-terminal domain of P27 bound to cyclin A and CDK2. And uh, we refer to this, so this is the N-terminus of P27. There's a short segment that binds uh, pretty tightly, uh, 15 nanomolar KD value, uh, to a, a conserved pocket on, this is cyclin A, that pocket is conserved in many other cyclins. Um, so this is one critical point of interaction. And um, sort of a side note relevant to the paper we'll discuss on Thursday um, is that um, this binding pocket on the cyclin is also a place where it recruits substrates. So there's a sequence of amino acids in P27 um, that are arginine, and then like any amino acid, and then leucine, RxL. And this, this region of P27 is referred to as the RxL motif. Um, and uh, substrates of CDK2 uh, have RxL motifs in their sequences. And so those motifs serve to dock the substrates to the cyclin regulatory partner of the CDK that's then going to phosphorylate a serine or threonine next to a proline, uh, also in the substrate amino acid sequence. Uh, so by binding to this binding pocket, so the, through P27 binding to this pocket on cyclin, it blocks substrate recruitment. Uh, and then there's this helix that forms that connects uh, domain one to, uh, you'll see in a second, is called domain two, very uh, cleverly. Uh, so uh, we refer to domain L, this, this helical segment is domain LH or linker helix. Uh, and then as I said before, domain two uh, folds up into this sort of intricate structure. There's a beta hairpin uh, that forms and it sandwiches against this beta sheet and then this part of P27 actually kicks out a strand of um, the last strand of this beta sheet structure of the N-terminal domain um, and takes its place, forming an intermo intermolecular strand. And then it sort of loops behind uh, sort of the roof of 
the active site and then inserts this turn of helix into the ATP binding pocket of CDK2, uh, completely blocking access of ATP. So the second mechanism of inhibition of CDK activity by P27 is to block ATP binding by inserting this um, turn of helix into the active site. And you'll see in a second that there's a tyrosine residue right here, tyrosine 88, um, that is the target of phosphorylation by upstream non-receptor tyrosine kinases. Um, uh, okay, so coming back to how P27 gets eliminated at the G1 to S checkpoint and the sort of key to solving the puzzle that I presented earlier. Uh, so, uh, so what happens is that a number of different non-receptor tyrosine kinases uh, can phosphorylate this um, tyrosine residue in P27. Um, and uh, so in, in this paper that we published in 2007, uh, we identified um, the kinases as ABLE and LIN. Uh, in a companion paper, another group showed that SARC um, could phosphorylate this residue, as well as a second tyrosine residue, tyrosine 74, that's located right there in the structure that we'll talk about in just a moment. Um, uh, but actually, in the paper we just had accepted in, uh, what is it, Journal of Molecular Biology, we show that uh, a much larger number of non-receptor tyrosine kinases can phosphorylate this tyrosine residue in P27. So, um, so, they're, they're, so P27 is essentially an integration point for cells making decisions about to divide, whether to, to divide or not. So there, what I mean by integration point is, so there are many, many different signaling pathways that can activate different non-receptor tyrosine kinases, but all those non-receptor tyrosine kinases can phosphorylate Gesundheit. Uh, the same tyrosine residue on P27, triggering uh, this cascade of events um, that I'll talk about next, so as to lead to P27 elimination and activation of CDK2 and progression of cell cycle. Um, so how does this process or this cascade work? Well, uh, in, a, in a paper in preparation, actually, uh, we show that this tyrosine actually fluctuates into and out of this binding pocket um, on the sort of microsecond time scale. Uh, and we use single molecule fluorescence methods to show that. And so this tyrosine, even though it's primarily in the binding pocket, as illustrated by the crystal structure, spends a little bit of time out uh, in solvent. And when it's out, if these kinases are active, it can become phosphorylated. And when it's phosphorylated, it simply does not fit back into the ATP binding pocket. It's really as simple as that. But these other points of attachment uh, persist. So this part binds to the cyclin. This beta, this, uh, um, beta hairpin remains bound to the kinase. 
Uh, and so what happens is CDK2 cyclin A is, should, well, uh, for simplicity, I just say it's reactivated, but it's only partially reactivated to the extent of about 20%. Um, but that small amount of activity is sufficient for the kinase to very efficiently phosphorylate this threonine within the disordered C-terminal domain of P27. So because P27 remains attached to the kinase, but the kinase becomes partially active, this threonine becomes essentially a captive substrate for phosphorylation. And when this threonine gets phosphorylated, that creates a motif called a phosphodegron uh, that then can bind to the SCF skip 2 E3 ligase, as I showed in a previous slide. So it literally just binds here. Um, and then the other components of the, of the ubiquitination machinery come in, the E1, the E2. Um, and there are three lysines. I forget the exact residues, but they're within this tail. And those lysines become the substrates for polyubiquitination. Um, and then those polyubiquitin chains are recognized by the 26S proteasome. And literally, P27 is stripped off CDK2 cyclin complexes, um, which are then fully active. Um, okay. So, isn't that pretty cool? Good. Yes? Is that why they use tyrosine kinase inhibitors a lot to treat? Yeah. Cancer? Yeah. So we showed, we showed in this paper that Gleevec inhibits this process. Yeah. So, so the, the first designer anti-cancer drug was, so, right, so, um, so Gleevec was the first structure-based drug. Um, and it was developed against um, BCR-ABLE, the, the fusion oncogene um, that's found in chronic myelogenous leukemia. And while, so, so in, in, so that, so, if you, so in, in chronic, in CML, very commonly, well, predominantly, you have the fusion of the N-terminal domain of a gene called BCR and the C-terminal um, domain or region of ABLE kinase fused together and what that does is, and, and the part of ABLE that's fused con contains the kinase, the, the, the um, kinase catalytic domain. But what the fusion eliminates are regulatory elements that regulate kinase activity. So the kinase activity of BCR-ABLE is always high. So it's a constitutively active non-receptor tyrosine kinase. And it phosphorylates a bunch of, you know, a wide variety of substrates, all of which contribute to the phenotype, or, or many of which contribute to the phenotype of CML cells. But one major, previously prior to this paper, uh, unknown substrate um, was this tyrosine of P27. So we showed that in CML cells treated with Gleevec, that this phosphorylation uh, was inhibited. Um, and uh, we, we showed that if you mutate this to phenylalanine, then BCR-ABLE no longer phosphorylates this, and those cells were less proliferative. Um, and in, so I'll talk in a couple of slides about 
the involvement of SARC in breast cancer. Um, so SARC phosphorylates the same site, but SARC also phosphorylates a second site, tyrosine 74, which I'll show in another sort of schematic slide, so I'll save that. Um, but because of the sort of you know, role of this residue as an integrator of upstream signaling, um, it is probably true that there are in, 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 in a wide variety of different types of cancer that there's some upstream non-receptor tyrosine kinase that is um, phosphorylating this residue and possibly um, the other tyrosine 74 as an, to contribute to the hyperproliferative state of cancer cells. Um, so um, P27 is sort of a poster protein in terms of being a disorder protein in the absence of its binding partners and undergoing folding upon binding uh, when engaging cyclones and kinases. Um, this slide sort of points out several different ways in which the disordered features of P27 contribute to its function. Um, and so it's, it's kind of a concept slide uh, that, that I think suggests at least um, ways in which disordered proteins can do, can, can play regulatory roles um, that would be hard to imagine for folded proteins. Um, so sort of strives to give some rationale for the evolution of disordered proteins. So one key concept is um, that P20, the different parts or, or regions of P27 are you know, sort of independent of each other. So, so the protein is, is com comprised of modules um, that function sort of together, but individually they function sort of independently. Like this domain one binds to cyclin, and then this, this helical segment connects domain one to domain two. Domain two's job is to bind to the kinase. And the C-terminal domain, its job is to remain disordered and uh, basically present this threonine for phosphorylation um, when the kinase is activated. Uh, so, and uh, these different modules, um, in the absence of a cyclin or a kinase, just are flopping around and having nothing to do with each other. Um, but they play their individual roles in the context of their complexes with cyclins and CDKs. Uh, but because of the, the and, and so, so the reason that P27 doesn't fold by itself is because, um, well, I mean, if, so if you just in your mind erase the kinase and the cyclin, you then have this P27, which is sort of all stretched out, and there are really no long-range interactions between residues in the different parts of the protein. So there are no long-range interactions that would stabilize this particular conformation in the absence of the cyclin and the kinase. So it's just going to sort of flop around. But 
there's enough sort of information encoded in the amino acid sequence so that these residues can bind to the cyclin, these residues can bind to the kinase. You know, this tyrosine fits into the ATP pocket of the kinase, so the protein can do its job when the substrate is present. Um, and another key aspect of how P27 works is its individual pieces are um, flexible. And they, they remain somewhat flexible even in the context of this complex. That may seem counterintuitive to you, um, but from the very beginning, we hypothesized in this paper that this tyrosine fluctuates in and out of this binding pocket because we could show biochemically that it could be phosphorylated if we added ABL or SARC to uh, solutions containing this complex. The only way it could become phosphorylated is if it fluctuated out. And as I said before, we now have direct evidence from single molecule fluorescence studies that this does fluctuate out to the extent of about 5 or 10 percent. Um, and so it's local flexibility within this region of the protein that enables the signaling cascade that I just described to you. Okay? So that's so flexibility then enables um, this tyrosine to integrate proliferative signals from many different non-receptor tyrosine kinases. And this is an example of a, a segmental motion uh, within a protein, a disordered protein bound to a partner um, where there are sort of regi residual uh, motions uh, or, or motions that present this residue to solvent for phosphorylation that are absolutely essential for the signaling cascade. Then uh, another way flexibility or disorder contributes to the signaling cascade is the flexibility within the C-terminal tail uh, allows this threonine to fluctuate up to the active site. Okay? Um, so we, we showed that experimentally uh, in this paper, or in the cell paper, not in this paper, this is a review paper. Um, uh, well, this is not a review, that's a review. Um, uh, we showed, well, I won't go into the technical details of what we showed, but we proved that this threonine gets phosphorylated in the context of this type of ternary complex. So the only way that can happen is if this polypeptide chain is flexible enough to allow this threonine to approach the active site that's been exposed by phosphorylation of this residue. Um, okay. So then another way that flexibility of the C-terminal tail is important for the signaling cascade is once this residue gets phosphorylated, it doesn't stay stuck up here. It fluctuates away and then sort of is dangling in solvent to recruit the E3 ligase that binds specifically to the phosphorylated threonine uh, motif, the phosphodegron. And then when the E3 binds, there's lysines that are you know, in this flexible chain that can easily become the substrates for the catalytic activity of the E3 ligase. Um, so P27 illustrates how disorder contributes to sort of signaling um, in this type of ternary protein complex. Okay, so this slide gets into uh, the additional phosphorylation site. Uh, so this uh, additional uh, paper, Chu et al., 
in the same issue of, so this paper followed our paper. Um, and actually my collaborator, Luther Hengst, was on both papers. Um, and in the second paper, they showed, they, they didn't go into mechanistic details like we did in, in our preceding paper, um, but they showed that this tyrosine 74 is um, additionally phosphorylated um, by uh, SARC. And that, and, and they showed this in the context of breast cancer cells in which SARC is upregulated. So in, a, in a, quite a significant fraction of breast cancers, SARC is upregulated. Up and uh, what was really cool, we haven't published this yet, we have a paper in preparation on this, the single molecule fluorescence paper addresses this. Um, we, sh we, showed, we showed originally that this single phosphorylation led to 20% of CDK2 activity, but this double phosphorylation leads to 50% kinase activity because the second phosphorylation displaces an additional portion of um, P27 from the kinase. But these other interactions persist, and so the uh, sort of intracomplex phosphorylation of this threonine um, still uh, occurs very efficiently, um, leading to uh, yeah, this phosphorylation. It's just that it occurs more efficiently when these two tyrosines are phosphorylated. So, um, so the, the ability of P27 to integrate upstream signals then, um, so it, it essentially has, I mean, it's like a rheostat um, where there are two settings for CDK activity upon tyrosine phosphorylation and it just depends upon whether uh, kinases that phosphorylate just this guy or both tyrosines are activated um, that will control we would predict the kinetics of progression from G1 to S phase. And that's something that we're actively testing right now. Uh, so, to summarize uh, this uh, somewhat long segment on P27, P27 is an intrinsically disordered protein. Uh, flexibility and modularity within its structure mediate um, Specificity and binding. Okay, so I, I haven't I haven't gone into this um, this particular aspect, um, and given that time is drawing short, I won't really emphasize this. But we yeah, you could we, we wrote a paper in Nature Chemical Biology in 2011 that kind of goes into um, how flexibility mediates the ability of p21 and p27 to bind to the entire uh, family of cyclin CDK complexes um, rather than binding to just any one particular one of them. Uh, but flexibility mediates phosphorylation dependent structural changes within P27 that alter its inhibitory function. So it, it is not a complete inhibitor of CDKs when tyrosines are phosphorylated. Um, it allows them to be partially active which leads to P27's demise. Uh, so inappropriate tyrosine phosphorylation of P27 is oncogenic in humans. So I pointed out um, uh, how through, um, through the fusion of BCR with ABL, you create the BCR-ABL oncoprotein. 
um, and this drives tyrosine-88 phosphorylation, and this is found in CML and also in certain uh, ALLs. Um, and then in breast cancer, SARC is upregulated, certain breast cancers, SARC is upregulated, and that drives the phosphorylation of both tyrosine-74 and 88. Um, just sort of an interesting uh, mechanistic detail is that um, in, in this paper that we hope to submit by the end of the year, uh, we show that tyrosine 74 is not accessible for phosphorylation until tyrosine 88 is phosphorylated. So there's sort of a, a sequential order to these phosphorylations. So the loosening of the structure by this phosphorylation then loosens tyrosine 88 and exposes it partially for phosphorylation by certain kinases. Um, okay, so this is a broad overview of what I covered today. Um, and I'm not going to go into this next particular slide. So what I'm going to do now is uh, spend the last few minutes introducing the subject of the paper that I want you to read between now and Thursday that we'll discuss in detail. So are there any comments or questions about what I've just been going through? Um, okay. Uh, if you have any problems, there's, well, there's, yeah, there's pretty good explanation of this stuff in the 2008 biochemistry review paper, but subsequently we've written, especially recently, quite a number of review papers, many of which go into P27. Um, okay, so we're going to talk about, on Thursday, a paper entitled Cascades of Multi-Site Phosphorylation Controls Sick one Destruction at the Onset of S-Phase. Uh, this is a paper that was um, written by Mark Lug, who um, is a previous postdoc with David Morgan at UCSF. David Morgan is sort of a legend in the cell cycle regulation field um, and remains active in this area. And so what the paper centers on is how, okay, so the paper centers on how two yeast CDK cyclin complexes, the complex of CDK1 with CLIN2, uh, and this other one, uh, CDK1 with CLIB5, uh, phosphorylate serine or threonine followed by proline motifs within the N-terminal disordered domain of SIC1, which is otherwise, uh, which is an inhibitor of this particular um, this CDK1 clip 5 cyclin CDK complex. Uh, so SIC1 has two domains. So SIC1 functionally is like P27, uh, and uh, in general terms, um, its domain architecture is, is similar. So there's 
one part of SIC1 that binds to uh, this cyclin kinase complex, uh, although the structural details of this are not known. Um, and it has a long disordered domain, uh, the N-terminal domain in this case. Uh, and within this domain are a whole bunch of different serine or threonine followed by proline motifs that are phosphorylated by these two um, kinases. But it turns out that the, uh, the way in which uh, these motifs, so there's like nine of them, are phosphorylated uh, occurs in a sequential and processive fashion. And the processive nature of these phosphorylation events stems from the fact that there's an accessory factor um, that binds to CDK1 that's called CKS1. So CKS1 is an adapter protein that binds to uh, phosphoserine or threonine followed by proline sites in proteins. And so, so those, are, those are the sites that this kinase phosphorylates. So what happens is that when a few initial uh, serine or threonine followed by proline sites are phosphorylated within this N-terminal domain of SIC1, then those phosphorylated sites get tethered to this CKS1, tethering the substrate to the kinase, which can now phosphorylate the other downstream serines and threonines um, in this tail. And once a certain number of sites within this tail are phosphorylated, then that triggers ubiquitination of the tail, leading to um, proteasomal degradation and full activation of uh, this kinase complex. So it's a very similar sort of conceptual scenario to what I just described for P27, although the details are, are quite different. And so what this paper um, goes into um, is an extensive, very detailed biochemical analysis of how uh, these kinases phosphorylate different sites within this N-terminal domain of SIC1, um, leading to a very sort of elegant model of how there are sort of primary sort of priming sites that once phosphorylated create the ability to bind to CKS1, which then promotes processive phosphorylation of additional uh, sites. So what I mean by processive phosphorylation is the substrate gets bound by CKS1 to a kinase complex, and then uh, sites within other parts of the disordered SIC1 chain get phosphorylated without dissociation from the kinase complex. Okay, so that's what's meant by processive phosphorylation. And, and the paper goes, basically explains the, the molecular basis for the observation of processivity in this um, in the signaling system. Um, so it's, it's a challenging paper, I fully admit. Um, but last year, uh, students did a very good job of explaining um, <coughs> all the figures. Um, so to encourage you to read and understand the paper, 
what I'm going to do on Thursday is ask you guys to lead the discussion figure panel by figure panel. And it's, it's a well-written paper, and it is, with enough time and effort, understandable. It really wasn't an issue last time. Um, if there's any reluctance for you to participate, I will come prepared with names in a hat, and I will select names. <laughs> so I have the list of your names. I asked for that the other day, specifically provide motivation for you to participate. So, and, and I don't want any one person or a couple of people to dominate the discussion, so I haven't counted how many panels there, there are, but there's a goodly number of panels in the paper. Um, so there's what, three figures, but they're multi-panel figures. So, you know, I would say easily a dozen of you will need to speak up. Um, Otherwise, we'll just have a lovely time staring at each other. So please read the paper, and, and if you don't understand things, then that's the basis for discussion. Um, but like I said, last time, students did quite well in figuring the paper out. And then they did well on the exam, which will require you to explain some aspects of this paper. Okay. Reading. Go read about mutate structure, structures and cells. Yeah. <laughs>